0: Welcome to Conversations with Z and Vindesh, a weekly discussion that explores common life challenges and offers practical solutions. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. That's D H A R M A Media.com. Welcome back to Conversations. Today we're talking about life and death. And Z, You just told an interesting story as we were talking. You mentioned that you studied with the Naga Sadhus in India. Badass people with matted hair, matted beards, walk around practically naked, use all kinds of weapons. And one of them, you got to know, every day this guy would get up in the morning and he would say, man, today is a great day to die. Strange. Strange thing to say. Normally, we get up and we think, My God, it's a great day to live. I can breathe, sun's on my back, I'm well fed, I'm thankful, so happy to be alive. Yet this man was saying it's a great day to die. He was perfectly at peace with that. And you were telling me how you went up to him, you asked him about that. Why would you say this? Why is it such a great day to die? And he said, You know, Z, It's because I live my life so completely. I leave nothing unsaid, nothing undone. I had a good night's sleep. My mind is clear. I've had a good run. And if this is the day I die, so be it. This is a great day to die. And it's so different from how we normally think about death. Normally, we're anxious about it, we're fearful. Another point you brought up, you said that in Buddhism, One of the... You can cut out some of the silence. I'm just trying to think of the right phrase. Tenets. One of the tenets of Buddhism is don't mistake the transience of life. Don't think that we're going to live forever. Recognize that things are always changing. Things are always finite. And we're not going to escape this alive. Everyone dies. And when we think about that... It sounds frightening, and I think that's why, especially in times like this, when there's so much panic and fear, people hunker down and they feel anxious, we go back into a primal state. We're afraid of death, we're afraid of losing everything. And when you think about life from that perspective, it does seem to be something that's terrifying. Everything that we have, everything that we love, can be ripped from us, taken at any moment. Yet, this sadhu that you met, Felt like that was perfectly fine because he'd lived a good life. You, who've gone through a lot in life, who've dealt with a lot of tragedy, your antidote for that is gratitude. Be grateful for the time that you have. Expect nothing. I'd like you to kick us off by talking a bit about this philosophy because I think it's so different from the way that most people operate in this world. Most of the time, we're happy when things go our way. But there's an underlying fear, an underlying paranoia that can turn into panic, as we've seen, when people fear that life is not going to continue. And it almost seems horribly unfair that we've been dragged into this world just so that we can suffer and die. Where is the gratitude in that reality? And how should we think about this?
1: The gratitude is in the awareness and and the intelligence of the self, the higher intelligence. Intelligence is the ability to discern and discriminate. Can you discriminate from what is permanent and what is impermanent? Can you discern what is, what can change and what is unchanging? Can you discern that the world does not adjust for you, that we adjust for the world? When you let intelligence be your guide, as we've said before, It will relieve much of the suffering that you've invited into your life. As we watch the moment that we live in and we share the stories of different people in our lives, how foolish we are to think that we're going to live forever and um, death will change course for us. We're We're afraid of death because death is unknown. Death is unknown because life is so restricted. Our lives are so restricted. What I mean by that is people typically fear the unknown because they have no picture in their mind of what that is. An unknown street, an unknown neighborhood, an unknown food, an unknown invention. The first thing is to perceive it as a threat. And then as you creep closer to it, you start to um, slap the lion. And what I mean by that is that people are fearful of wild animals. And so they'll go to the zoo between a glass and a cage, and they'll taunt the animal, the lion, the gorilla, whatever. And then they'll go to a petting zoo, and they'll see a baby one, and they'll rub it and touch it. And then they believe that they know the animal. Then they'll go somewhere like one of these clowns on one of these shows and they'll make it a pet. Then they start punching it and kicking it in the nuts, putting their hands down its throat. Then all of a sudden the animal tears their arm off or rips their part of their head off like these uh, guys in Vegas. And if he says, oh my God, you got to kill the animal. Look what it did. Well, why would you have to kill the animal? Because you wanted to change that that was unchangeable. That's what that animal does. It eats lower life forms. It is an apex predator. That's all you need to know. Give it a huge birth around you. Let it go far around you. Avoid it. Don't taunt it and tempt it. So first you feared it, now you despise it so too as we live our life every day. If we accept that we're going to die and there is nothing you can do about the inevitability of death, either through a moment of fate, and the intervention of fate, or you live a long time and the normal um, dissolution of the human body, either way you're out of here for an eternity. Take that off your plate and just live your life. Say what you need to say to the people you love. Be who you need to be. Be true to yourself. To thine self be true. And every moment you stagger and you feel the the infringement of the ego and, 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 and shyness and embarrassment and all that, remember, when you're dead, Strangers will wipe your body up. They will cut your insides open. They will relieve you of your entrails, inject you possibly, if you're uh, into the uh, burial thing, they're going to inject you with preservatives so you look fresh as a daisy as you rot in the presence of others. You'll be butt naked with all your orifices exposed. That's death. If, like myself, you choose the funeral pyre, there will be about an ounce of dirt left of you. That's it. Whatever you planned for, whatever you did. And then you know what? A year, two years, five years after that, your existence on this earth will be completely gone. And only memories of you by the people that loved you will continue to exist only the sentiment of the heart that you left behind, that is your eternity. That is your final show. So as long as they remember you and are fond of you, you will exist in their heart and their heart only. I find that very relieving because now I can just be whoever the hell I wanna be because it's all gonna end the same. So we're running around guarding ourselves and thinking, and we justify, oh, I'm doing my due diligence. I'm doing everything I can to preserve my existence, but you're not living. I'm sheltered in place. I think for a period of time, that's a wise thing to do, but you need to have sanctions on that. You need to know a limit. There are also people in prison that live in what's called solitary confinement. They're sheltered in place, and they're aching to get out into the sun just to Breathe in the virus and have fun before it sets in. So we can be pretty messed up then. I'm saying honor death, embrace it 100% so that you can live as freely as possible. I did not say be reckless with your precious life, I didn't say that. But for all your planning, all the planning we do, all the preparation we do, we're not living. It takes most of our energy preparing and planning to die than we does to live. A great person told me one time, die broke. He said, the day you die, the very moment you take your last breath, the th- last thing you should hear is this. Bill Collector bill collector. That's it. Don't leave anything undone. Don't leave anything undone. Why would that be so wrong? This life is short. It's fragile. It's an accident of fate. It's a blessing. It's a gift. There are people that never made it to be uh, adults. There have been young children who have passed away. Never got to see all of this, but they live forever in the heart of that mother or father. All the hopes, all the things you wanted for them. You know, and none of those hopes and things you wanted were planning, prepping, creating barriers and walls between you to protect your stuff from what? Protect your stuff from what? Getting ready for what? To not live? You have this precious life. It has a pulse. It has warmth. It has all sorts of energies flowing through it. We need to accept death completely. And as the great Sadhu said, it's a great day to die because I lived completely. I laughed real hard. I cried a lot. I had told funny jokes. I made mistakes. I tried this and I did that, and I recovered from this, and I went here, and I gained knowledge here, and I shared it there, and then I died. That's a great life. That's a great life. So a lot of the way we're, we're living right now exemplifies what I'm saying in the sense that So many people are fearing death and what they're really fearing is living. I see it in their faces. I see it in their panic. We choose to be unhappy. We choose to worry. We choose to fancy ourselves as those who control the uncontrollable. I can't control another person's life. The Vedic teaching tells us that the only thing controlled that you won't regret is your mind the only thing that you seek to control that you won't regret controlling is your mind can you control other people if you try you will regret it can you control the weather you'll be caught in the rain you can't control these things you can only control your mind so let's think about that again I don't own the truth I'm just sharing my experiences man is is is. I have been with people. You know, I think about death, and I share the story about my my dog when I was a kid. That dog will live as long as I live. I see King in the. I saw King in the skylight of one of my homes, one Christmas day. Every year he visits me. Every time I share his story, he lives. Because he never really lived except in my heart anyway. That was my dog. My dad that never got to see the things that I saw in life. He will be forever 36 years old. In my heart, in my mind. When I turned 40 years old, I had the epiphany that my dad had, I had outlived my dad. And it was one of the strangest sensations in the world. And when I was visiting India and I saw a man who, I told you that story, who looked just like my dad. And he was younger than me and I realized that, wow, I got to do, I got to live so much more. And it changed my view on life. It's like, wow, this is it. Whether we live, whether we are stillborn or rather, we get to be a hundred years old, this is it. It's all so insignificant, because it's only significant to the individual who's living it, truly significant, and it has a collateral significance to those who love you. You can't protect them from your death. You can only prepare them for your death by how much life you share with them how much we don't know about the people we love. I shared with you stories, things I learned about my mom in her death that I never knew about her in her life that made me appreciate her more than, I wish I could share with her how much I appreciate her, how grateful I am. I thought my mother hated me all my life. And after her death, I realized her sacrifice that she had made for me that she loved me more than the superficial display of love that people call love, more than the superficial display of affection and attention. But she gave me what I needed to survive without her in this very challenging environment. She loved me in a divine way. So no, I didn't get the cuddly, warm teddy bear kind of love with cards and kisses but you know what? she gave me a muscle bound soul and a muscle bound spirit and I'm a badass dude she made me badass cause this world is hard on me and men like me and I will leave this world one of the unbroken this world has never broke me it has never buckled me down I've been chewed up spit out knocked down and got right back up As they say, bruised, battered, and scarred, but hard. And I'm able to smile freely, cry freely, love freely, laugh freely. And I fear nothing in this world. There are things I dread, but I do not fear. Fear does not guide me or my decisions. Steady logic, reasoning, steady intelligence. And an open heart. Because what I say to death, bring it on because you come in anyway. It'll be my turn anyway. And when I'm gone, if all works well, you youngsters will share stories of your experience with, with Z. And only you could speak of them. My hope is that you had a good experience with me. So when my body is no longer here, I hope the things that I have taught you will carry you through life the things that I've shared with you will better your life. That's what I hope right now, because when I'm dead, I won't give a fuck.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, you've said about 50 things that I can react to. It's, it just brings up so much in my mind. I'll pick on one of these, which is fear. How you don't fear anything. That frees you up to live. And if we go back to the sadhu, who lives so completely that he didn't worry about death. This is one of the ironies that we face. We're afraid of dying. And because we're afraid of dying, we don't live. So we hide, we hunker down, we plan, we protect ourselves, we don't let go, we don't open ourselves up. And as we do that, we recognize somewhere inside that we are not living. And because we're not living, we have that desperation to live, to experience, and we think, my God, I can't let death cheat me of this. I need to prolong this yet in that prolonging the anxiety and the fear hold us back so we're just caught in this cycle where we're never living it's some kind of purgatory some kind of living death where we're just trying to stave off a final demise yet we're not taking advantage of time while we have it we're not taking advantage of experiences and what i think it's important for people to understand is how normal this behavior has become and when i say normal i don't mean that it serves us in any way or it's acceptable. It's just normal and that everyone does this. We're crippled by anxiety. We're always worried about petty things. We've lost perspective. That's why I think this Buddhist perspective of stepping back and recognizing the final truth that we're all going to die, we're not that important. Another injunction from Buddhism is get up in the morning and meditate on your own death. And that forces you to think about the transience of life. And it forces you to say, let me put these petty problems aside. Let me just enjoy the time that I have. And let me go out there and do what I need to do. Because I don't know, number one, whether I'm going to survive until the end of the day. I don't know whether I'm going to be reincarnated. I have no idea what comes after this. All I have is this moment, this series of moments to experience. And I'm going to get as much out of this as I possibly can. So just having that awareness, cultivating that mentality is important. And it's a huge antidote. And I think if I tie this into our earlier discussions over the last few weeks, that's where gratitude comes in. That's where perspective comes in. When we can step back and we can say we're basically insignificant in terms of time, in terms of space. We can't argue that we have any impact at all on this universe, which has existed for 16 billion years, where we inhabit just such a tiny, tiny corner of the universe for such a small amount of time, the only significance that our life has is to us. And we're the ones that ultimately we're accountable to. So that's also part of the challenge that we face. I think maybe that's where some of the fear comes from. There's this inherent contradiction, which is from a cosmic standpoint, life is unbelievably insignificant. We're totally irrelevant. On the other side, if we think about our own lives, Our lives are incredibly significant to us, so they feel really important, yet they are utterly meaningless. And can we hold both concepts in our mind at the same time? And I think by accepting, if we get back to how we opened the discussion, if we can accept that death is inevitable, if we can accept that life is meaningful to us, but not meaningful in any other sense, there's a certain freedom that comes with that. Because then... What difference does it make? What difference does it make whether we make a lot of money, we don't make a lot of money, we live out the life that we imagined in our mind, or we do something else? The pressure is off. We can just go out and be who we need to be, do what we need to do, say the things that we need to say, get value out of each moment that propels us to the next moment. That's ultimately all we have, a series of moments. And as long as we're enjoying those, that should be enough. So if we take that, Z, my question to you is, Where do we go wrong? Somehow, as we're caught up in this anxiety and this fear, we've decided that just living is not enough. I need to make my life somehow more significant, more important. This mundane shit about going to work every day, coming back, taking care of my family, it's just not that exciting. I need to do something great. I need to do something beyond. And it's almost like we have this precious gift in our hand that we never experienced. We throw it away without even looking at it while we're searching for something new where does that come from?
1: it comes from ignorance that simple ignorance to turn willfully turn away from light and knowledge as you were talking I wanted to extend on what you said on the, the Buddhist meditation on life and death and then ask us to close your eyes take a few deep breaths sit quietly it's a beautiful meditation And as your mind clears, imagine the people you love the most, who are dearest to you, dying the most horrific, tormented death. Their body being torn from limb to limb. Them slowly dying and begging for death to take them away. Burning in a car. Meditate on that. See them split in half and suffering deeply. Just close your eyes and take a breath on that. Then once you do that, open your eyes and begin your day. That's how it really goes. So if you do that, how do you think you would treat the people in your life if you did that meditation every day? What do you think, Carlos? How would you treat those people? Endearingly. Yeah. How much planning would you do for next year? None. What would you say to them? Everything you needed to help. Us. That moment, as soon as I see them. You see how beautiful that is? Yeah. That's the problem, Ben. They've already shown us how to do it. And it's only ignorance that prevents us. What major argument or issue would you have with the people you care about? How differently would couples engage one another? Would they miss out on time with... How many petty arguments would you have after you did that meditation? How many frivolous fights would you have? How much would you pout? How about walking backwards from the memorial service of someone you love dearly? And after the eulogy is said and the body is disposed of and you're sitting there in the quiet of the world that keeps going. What would you wish if you could ask the God of time to reverse the clock? Can you do me this one favor, Kayla? And just this one time reverse your wheel so I can do a redo of something I did with that person. If you would give me this one chance, just to could you reverse your inexor your your wheels that never stop turning? If you could do that just for me one time, what would you say to the people in your life that you give a damn about? What would you say? Caitlin, Vin, Carlos, what would you say? I love you. I I forgive you. What would you say, Caitlin?
0: I'm here with you. What would
1: would you do? What would would you say, Vin?
0: Well, I think I'd say most of it anyway. What would you do? Spend time with
1: Would you hold back affection?
0: No,
1: no. Would you bring up some issue of last week that you were pissed off about? Would you have long conversations trying to change their view or opinion on your politics? So this is how powerful it is. So only it's ignorance. It's only ignorance. Even the most brilliant of people, even the most literate of us, are foolish when it comes to this. That's why the world is in the. That's why we're we're at we're at we're at today. Yeah, you do your due diligence. You work hard. You 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 do as much as you can for safety and security. But you know, the more insecure you are, the more you succumb to ignorance. You walk around and you look at some of the police forces that are having problems with society. The guy gets out of the car. He has a bulletproof vest on, dark shades, armor. Mace, a gun with many rounds of ammunition, a bulletproof car, a shotgun, a radio that keeps him in contact with other highly armed people as he pulls over a child on a bicycle. Shoots the child and says, I feared for my life. Well, you had training, a bulletproof vest, all sorts of ammunition and armor. You had logistical support funded by the state. So you still feel afraid of what? Of what? Of what? Because you didn't really live your life. So you fear death because you've been planning on living. A lot of people plan on living after they retire. I'm going to suffer and sacrifice and after I retire I'm going to live. I'm going to push myself into the bosom of death. So after I rest in the bosom of death, then I'm gonna go live. That's why most people die shortly after retirement. They gave their whole life to the company, didn't they? They say it. And they give you a watch or something.
0: Yeah, we got people who are dropping
1: dead while working at the company. That's right. Because they're they're working so hard. The, The whole term, working themselves to death. He worked himself to death. Why did he do it? Because he feared the thing that he invited into his life prematurely. Excuse me. So it's simply ignorance. And, and one of the things that that I can share experiences, I've had a lot of great losses in my life with people that were very dear to me. And the problem is, is you can share your experience, but. I was told by a teacher once that you will experience a learning or learn from experience. So I'm going to share my experience and maybe it will give us pause to study the teachings of the Buddha on death or the Tibetan or the Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Death Sutra. There have been many people that I love dearly that have passed away Way too soon, as far as I was concerned. As far as I was concerned. But it was their time. Tragic as it may be, through accident or, again, the whim of fate, they're gone. I can close my eyes and hear their voices. Little things they said and did that will always resonate until I'm gone. I remember one of the most... Of all the losses, if I had to pick any group of them, was, as you know, the death of my brother. It goes like this and what it taught me. So I've been a party and a witness to the death of many people, uncles, fathers, my father, uncles, aunts, nieces, nephews, good friends, associates colleagues, soldiers, or airmen that I served with, and I was always able to make sense of the death after I did the algebra, right? I did the situational math, and it made sense, okay? This is why it happened. I was able to um, make myself feel more comfortable by assigning an algebra of the events that led up to their death. And it all made sense. And then, I thought I had it down. I thought I had mastered death, because I knew the math of death. So I could calculate death, and the potential for death, and the uh, opportunity for a person to die, and the mistakes they would make that would lead to a premature demise. I also calculated a certain age that you're riding the friggin' lightning bolt anyway. You're riding the dragon anyway. So if you go after a certain date, that's just the way it goes. Whatever happens, just because you've ridden the dragon so many damn times, it's time to fall off and, and go to the eternal bliss, right? Go into Mahasamadhi or whatever it is. My brother was a different story for me because I had this calculation. I was... Uh, at the peak of my business, I was uh, a little bit older than you are now, Vin. I was in my my late forties. I had reached a point in my business where I could actually retire. I was within I was within range of firing range of what I could say I could perpetuate an income that would carry me for the next 30 or 40 years. I was in a good place, a great place. I had a huge workshop and celebration that kind of would begin the new genesis of me not having to get up early in the morning and bust my ass to make rent. I did it, I did it independently. I didn't work for a corporation, I worked for myself. No, I'm an entrepreneur. And what else could be better? I invited my brother into my life and said, we can work together. Finally, we can work together. I can provide for you and me. I can provide for your family and mine with this scheme I have. We're going to do it. He came down and he worked with me and it was heaven on earth. Only way to describe it. I got my big brother right there with me. My Yaya was right there with me, and we're getting ready to walk through the fucking pearly gates of retirement. And we didn't do it by shuffling, grinning at at some corporate job. We did it upright like real men. Coming from horrible beginnings and humble beginnings and tragedy. We made it through the fire. Like a biblical story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We went through the fire and did get burnt. We kicked ass and took names. Now we're gonna show the world how to do it. I was sitting up in my home in the hills, uh, west side in the hills of LA and Topeka, sitting in my home after a long, fruitful day, like a good day with no complaints. Everything went right. The kids are there. We put the kids to bed. We're sitting there talking, reflecting upon our whole life together. My big brother, who was my best friend, my mom, my dad, my buddy, rolled up into one person. We look across L.A. and he said, my God, look at us. My baby brother lives on the top of a hill in L.A. We're looking at this big city and we just took over. I felt like James Cagney in Little Big Man. Look at me, Ma. I'm on top of the world. That's what I felt like. And we talked and we laughed in a way that only brothers do. Mm-hmm. Only brothers do. And all my memories of, of the love he had bestowed upon me flashed through me. So many memories. I can't even tell them all now. That's another story. Everything that made me who I am. What I knew about him is that he loved me. He loved me so much. And he never failed to show that. He knew my strengths and my weaknesses. And he protected me from the harshness of this world. I was his Beleka, his puppy. We talked and we laughed all night. Damn near to the sun came up. And we fell asleep next to each other with the kids sprawled out about the house, all of our children. He gets up that day and says, baby brother, I'm going to be back next week and we're going to, Work out the business plan. We're going to get the finances together. And we're going to do our thing. We did it. So you know what? I'm not even going to pack my bags. I'm going to leave all my bags here. Wash my clothes for me. I'll be back next weekend. My shoes are at the door. My bags. Put my clothes in the closet with yours. And I'll be right back. The kids have to go to school. We're going to drive home and come right back. I said, great. Told everybody, get ready to big meeting next week. We're gonna blow this, we're gonna blow the world up. We're gonna take over the world. So a wellness thing I do. It's gonna be like the the big show. Ringling Brothers and Barnum Bay had nothing on us. And I had a bunch of people that were interested in buying into my business. Everything was looking good. I lie down. He leaves. I'm so happy. God, so content. It can't get better than this. We won. We won. We beat the system. Nothing held us back. So I get up and next day and the phone is ringing. Early in the morning, phone is ringing. I said, oh my god, who's in? I look on the back then they have what they call caller ID. You look at the caller ID and it was my nephew calling. Kiasi. I said, oh, what is he want? This early in the morning. Let's see more. So early in the morning, what's going on? Must have left something here. I get the phone. He said, Uncle, come home. My dad is dead. I need you to come home. I said, what? What? My dad, your brother, he gone. He's gone. He's dead. He was killed by a drunk driver. Hmm. So time stopped. Time froze. I jumped in my car, and it took me four and a half hours to get to the Bay Area from L.A. Time and space stopped and froze, and in my mind, in my warped way of thinking, I thought if I got there fast enough that there was something they missed and I could revive my brother. I would give everything. I would trade body parts. If this body is there in the hospital, I will breathe life back into my yaya. I drove and there was no time. Time froze. I get there. My sister's on the street, worried. She couldn't get in touch with me. I couldn't hear I get to his home, there are people all about the streets because he was well loved, well known, had loved a lot of people. My nephew sees me, I say, okay, what do you need me to do? So well, we're trying to find some papers, I said, I know where they're at. Because we had just had the discussion, I know where all your insurance papers, are. I know where everything is at. I said, it's in the closet under this. And I, I know where it's at, let's go do it, but I need to go see my brother. My nephew says, are you sure? I said, I got to go see. So we go to the morgue, they have my brother in the refrigerator. They don't let us go in, they, as it was a crime, I look at him on video. I said, I got to get to him. My nephew said, well there's, all of his stuff is in the car. I said, let's go to the car. I sit in his Mercedes. I sit in the steering wheel. I sit. I'm trying to compose myself as much as I can for my nephew. I sit in the car. I've driven in that car a thousand times. My brother, I've shared cars with him. Uh, We've ridden in cars. We've driven together. He always drove too slow. He always drove too slow. He always obeyed every friggin' traffic law. I sit in the wheel of that Mercedes, and as strong as that car is, the steering wheel is twisted into a figure eight. The hinges of the seat are ripped out as if a welder had cut the seats. It's bent back a certain way, so I hold it, and I imagine what my brother was doing. I could see him turning left. I hold the wheel, and I said, my God, how hard he tried to stay with us, how hard he tried to stay with us. And he was at an intersection that we all go to. Every time I go to that neighborhood, I have to stop at that stop sign and make the same left turn he's made innumerable times. My big brother is gone. The person I love the most in this world, not just that I love the most, the person who loved me the most. And I sat in that car for a while and I told my nephew, okay, let's get this stuff out of the car and let's handle this. Let's do it. Let's handle this. And my nephew just rucked up like a man many years older than he really was. And he became, he was a complete man that he always was and he endured and he comforted me, my baby nephew that I remember being a sick baby and a little boy going through all the late nights with him and his medical issues and having just lost his mom was comforting me. I don't know what he knew, but I had, we handled it that moment. And I remember getting his body prepared and touching my brother, even then, death, so mean, so indiscriminate. I touched my brother's body, which has comforted me and held me when I had pneumonia and was sick and held me tight and did our traditional medicine to get me well, where he had to hug me all night and hold my sick body until I was well so I could go and work the next day uh, and, and provide for my children. And he made sure I could do that. I touched his body that I know like mine, and it was like porcelain. It was like a cold, empty vessel. And I drank that in. I drank the emptiness of that body in. And I remember every joke, every laugh he told me, every crazy thing, every good thing, every sweet thing we had ever done together. And I just started to withdraw from this world. And after he was buried and I returned home, his clothes sitting just where he left them, exactly where he had placed them with his own hands, with his own words, I heard them echo in my mind. It was I was between sanity and insanity. And I have dealt with death. I've dealt with it many times. I have buried many people and I have held many people as they took their last breath. I know aspirant breathing like I know a baby's cry. But this one, no, I couldn't handle this one. I couldn't handle this one. And every day, I would wake up Believing it was a nightmare and wondering why I was still here. He was the good one. I was not a good man. He was a good man to me. Shortly after that, I had a catastrophic neck injury that required me to get a major experimental surgery. And I quietly resigned myself to, I'm ready to go. Because this world is not worth being in if I cannot share it with my brother. See, I did everything. I've done everything. Uh, Things that people fantasize about, I've done. Adventures that people wish they had, I've done. Novels are written with people who have imagined their life to be like mine. So I have no reason to be here anymore. Because without the love and the word and the voice And the resonance of my brother here in this temporal plane with me, it had no value. It had no value. So I got this surgery to reconstruct my neck. And they said there's a very low chance of surviving this surgery. Friends and relatives came down to say goodbye to me. And I was okay with it. I was okay. I've all done you all a solid. I'm ready to get out of here. This surgery will probably fail. And I'm ready. Because I want to be wherever my brother is. And he ain't here. He's not here. So wherever I'm at, I'm closer to him than I am far away. So they take me into the surgery. My best friends, my sister, they're there clients students of all kinds different people I knew I so many people showed up to wish me well I didn't know I had touched that many people's lives the hospital was filled with people some people I'd known for years some people I just met my sister said I can't take another loss my best friend said you're the toughest dude I know whatever they're putting on you you can endure but in my heart I didn't want to I didn't want to be here because what is life without the people in your life that's all I thought about I just needed to trade with my brother I just needed to trade places see death is indiscriminate death doesn't give a damn but death I needed death to take me and not him Nobody would miss me. We miss him. It's not fair. See, that's what I was thinking. So I go and get the surgery. The surgeon comes, a wonderful surgeon, says, look, man, we don't know. We've never done this on an ambulatory human being ever. We have never done this extensive amount of spinal cord surgery on a walking man. And the only reason that I can imagine in all my medical knowledge as a neurologist There is no physical reason you should be able to walk for the sheer pain that you should be in from the nature of this injury would cause adrenal toxemia and the impingement into your spine should not allow you to walk but you're walking around like normal because I felt nothing. I felt nothing. The pain of losing my brother relative to this pain I was physically going through Overwhelm overwhelmed the physical pain tenfold so I could walk around even though I had no blood flow in my neck. So they do the surgery. While I'm under anesthesia, I have one of those out of body, what they call these experiences you have, near death experience, whatever the hell. And I get to speak to my brother while I'm under the anesthesia. I see him just like we're sitting here in this room. And I say to my brother, I see him, and I say, Hey, I'm here with you. We're great. Uh, I couldn't be in that world without you. It sucks out there. It sucks. And I'm not really doing anything great. And without you, to to tell, brag about how great I am and for you not boosting me up all the time and telling everybody how wonderful your little brother is, it's not even worth being there. And for the first time in my life, my brother was angry at me. He's never spoken harsh to me, ever. He was always gentle with me. As rough and tough and and hard as I am to everybody else, I was his puppy. I was his baby brother. And he said, you are not supposed to be here with me. I said, what do you mean? I say, it's hell out there. It's hell without you. It's empty. The world is empty. My world is empty. I'm just a shell. He says, no, man. When that car hit me, I left that. I left my body and I realized there was nothing in this world I had left undone. All I need you to do is make sure that my son finishes his master's degree, finishes his education. Support him in that. Encourage him in that. I need you to do that for me and there's other things you need to do with your life. You're not It's not your time, it's my time. Do not interfere with my time because if you're here, I have to take care of you and I have other things to do now and you need to go and do what you need to do and we will see each other in the future but not now. So I need you to go back, do what I ask you to do, and live your life, because it is not your time. And I said, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll do what you say. And as that window started to close, that room started to shrink, I left there and I swam and found myself back in the operating room, and I had survived the surgery. And here I am. Death is a mean, mean thing. It is indiscriminate. It's impersonal. And it is inevitable. And death will visit all of us in different ways. And each of those experiences, and especially that one, taught me that it's not about death. Because there's nothing we can change. It's about life. So over the years, I've learned to speak openly and freely to the people I love and the people I like. The people I dislike and don't give a damn about, I don't bother with. I distance myself from those because I don't have the energy to give to people that I don't love or like. And the people I like always become people I love. So I decided... It was decided for me by my big brother that I would live the way he did. He was a loving, open-hearted person. And I wasn't. All my mentors and the people are always were very different than me. I was closed-hearted. So I just try to better the life of everybody I meet in their name. Not in my name, in their name. Because that's how I keep them alive. And in keeping them alive, I keep myself alive. Because what is life worth living if you don't have people that love you? What is it, what is this life? A plan, some paperwork, an insurance policy? And you didn't do anything while you were here. You didn't fucking do anything while you were here. Love them, make friends, be good to people, share your knowledge, share your experience. It's too short. And death will come. Death is hovering around all of us at all times. So let's not focus on that. Let's focus on nurturing the life we have. Hiding from death won't work. Death and its companion, fear. Fear and death. Fear and death. Fear and death. Then you never lived. You never watered the garden of life. The most despicable of us, the most undeserving of us have people that love us. Unconditional. Like I told you the story about a dog. They have dogmatic love for us. Our parents, our friends. We could be hatchet murderers and they would put some money on our books. We could screw up every way and there would be somebody that says, you know, I understand. I love you. I've I've had good friends. I've had great friends all my life. I have friends that there was no light between myself and them. No light could pass. We were so close. And some that are still here that we are that close. That with me, their strengths and weaknesses, their secrets, their stories will live in me forever in the private quiet of my heart. And I think about them all the time, and I look for their face and that feeling in everybody I meet. Because that's the way I keep life going for me. And I tell you, if you do that, you'll enjoy the hell out of this ride. Because what it's done is done. So death, fear and death, it like gravity.
0: How far more do we want to go?
1: Well, what do you have to say?
0: Well, I can keep this going. Uh, go. All right. Go. Carlos, go. Any of you guys, go. Caitlin, go. Shit. It's what we do. Well, you talk about this, and you mentioned at the beginning of your story the algebra that you went through. The notion that if you knew people, you knew their habits, you knew their age, their circumstances, the risk they took. You can make sense of this insane journey that we're on and the things that feel so random and unpredictable and scary you can reduce to rules principles science and with that comes a sense of control and with that control maybe some lessening of anxiety some feeling of predictability and suddenly in an instant when you were at the top of the world all of that algebra, all that machinery, evaporated. It collapsed in an instant. And you realized you were on yourself, like we all do. We all have this idea of life, of certainty. Part of it's around death. Part of it is, if I do X, I'll be okay. Oh my goodness, someone died from the virus, but they were old and they had heart conditions, I'll be okay. Someone else died, Kobe Bryant, who was in the news recently. He died at 41, on top of the world, incredible work ethic, life ahead of him. But he rode in helicopters. I don't take helicopters. I'm going to be fine. We do it with regard to a lot of things in life, all the planning, all the controlling. The sense that we need certain things to happen, we have to affect certain change. We create these rules, these mental exchanges. If I do X, I will get Y. If I study hard, I'll graduate, I'll have a good job. If I act a certain way, I'll attract the right person. If I keep my head down, if I impress the right people, I'll get ahead and work. My life will work out. And it doesn't really work that way. And when we do that, a couple of things happen. I think number one, we shut ourselves down to being open-hearted, to seizing opportunities that present themselves because we have blinders on. We're so focused on what we want to happen on our own agenda. We lose the ability to just ride with the wave. Ride life as it evolves. Participate in that process because we're so focused on control. And it also feeds our constant anxiety, the frenzy that we talk about, all of the mental energy that goes into this planning, this preparation, these... Hypothetical agreements and deals that we strike with the universe to ensure our safety, our security, sanction our dreams, it's all a lie. It's all a complete illusion. And that's what takes us away from living. The idea of controlling life, of making sure things turn out the way that we want, take us away from living life. And that's what you experience. And you experience that in an instant. And you're a person who's highly aware of death. Who's been through a lot of tragedy. Who's also been through a lot of philosophy. Who understands the transience of life. The, the fact that life does what it does. We're part of this vast and incredible system that we'll never fully understand. Yet even you were subject to that need to control. So if that's you, Z, what does that say for most of us? Who are struggling with this. I think intellectually we can understand. We can get behind it. And we can say, yeah man, you're right. We are going to die. I can meditate on death. And maybe that does something for me. That changes my priorities. I'll be more loving. I'll be more patient. I'll maintain perspective. What I have seen though. Is that mental frenzy. That constant anxiety. Is much harder to eradicate. And we've talked in the past about. Psychologists. Who feel. Who feel that ultimately all fear stems from fear of death. So even if you're afraid of bad things happening, of losing money, of making a fool of yourself, whatever it is, that somehow originates with this primal fear of death. And if that fear of death is so ingrained and our habit of turning and projecting and mentally controlling is also so deeply ingrained, what do we do? How do we get beyond this without suffering the tragedy that you suffered? Is that what it takes to shake us out of complacency? What is the advice that we can provide for the person who does have that perspective, who's ready to get away but can't shake the anxiety? Remember a fool learns from his own mistakes and a
1: wise person learns from the mistakes of others. So look at the things that didn't work for you, don't work for people. We know that we have a primal fear of the unknown. Accept that 100% and act upon it in this way. Love with an open heart. Nurture the people that like you and don't water the weeds. Don't waste time with situations or people that no matter what you do will not nurture that open heartedness in you learn healthy boundaries with everybody there are different people based on things they go through in life can offer you different things but one of the most vital things that what is life light life is light levity the sun inspires life on earth what is the inner sun that you have and it's indiscriminate also You can nurture that light in many ways. Even sometimes in nurturing that light, it taxes you. All those of you who work for me, you guys seen me drained and tired and exhausted, but that's a workout for me, that's a workout. Sometimes in order to win the Olympics, you gotta run yourself ragged. So my heart is always open until it is not beneficial to be that way. Then I need to discriminate. But I don't start out discriminating. I start out first discerning, listening, getting to know people, really listening to what they're saying and and honoring what they say, and then provide a space in my heart, in my world, to fill in the void of those who have passed through. Nature abhors a vacuum. It will always fill it with something, but we can choose what we fill it with. I don't see other people as of lesser value than I see of my own family. I do honor that people see life that way and they have different metrics of value. The, I see the utilitarian value of people, as I said, like a guerrilla warfare person, a guerrilla fighter. I live off the land. I see being open-hearted with this young man, Carlos, that I met through my nephew. He's come here and he's brought his skill and his talent and also just his, his, his good-naturedness makes my life better. Caitlin came here with nothing to offer but stolen bread. <laughs> but her efforts to learn and to grow and to nurture a community that she valued has improved us. And she is now... An indispensable part of our community. Is that right? Yeah, it is. I met your weird, uptight ass, creepy, hyper attentive, paranoid, but I saw in you with an open heart. The open heart changes your vision. I saw myself, I saw uh, a son that I could have possibly been mine, and I saw a good friend. And I just went deep into the quiet of my heart. And I have love for you. And my heart is full and not empty. And I have an infinite quiet space and room. And I learn from those who I'm attached to, by familiar bonds, how to treat those I am unfamiliar with in the same way. So it allows me to breathe. It allows me to endure the pains of daily life and the forces of gravity because it's gave, given me a muscle-bound spirit and a muscle-bound soul. So
0: all I can share with others
1: is learn from people who've been through it.
0: And the point you make about stillness and the openness and the love coming from the stillness is critical. I think that's something I would add to what you said. When we're caught up in this frenzy and the thoughts and the negativity and the news cycle, we don't have the perspective. You can intellectually agree with everything we've discussed over the past hour, yet you won't feel it when you're in primal mode and you're worried about your survival and you're feeling anxious. In order to gain the perspective, we need to be still. I don't think there's any way around that. We need to cultivate some peace of mind you would mentioned earlier how you can judge the feral nature of a person based on how easy or difficult it is for them to be still. And if we can take that time, let thoughts settle, let emotions settle, all the dust settles, we gain that appreciation, that perspective. I think it becomes easier to internalize what we've talked about and to act on it. And it's not that complicated. Cultivate relationships. Weed out the things that are going to drain your energy. Whatever you have to say or do, do it now. Because now is the time.
1: I found something too interesting, Van, just to, as a side note, what I've observed about the human challenge, is over the years as I've worked in this wellness business and trying to mitigate human suffering. What I have found that people fear about me the most, which is uh, something worth noting and observing. You know a bit about my history. You know the story Smacy has told you about my childhood, that I was raised to be a child soldier, a warrior on the highest level. People don't fear that. They don't fear that I'm a martial arts expert or weapons expert. They don't fear that I was the head of major corporate security. They don't fear that. They don't fear that I am knowledgeable of the human body, that I can wield the tools of life and death. They don't fear that. They don't fear that I can read most people like a Dr. Seuss book. They don't fear that. They don't fear that I'm freakishly strong, quick reflexes, can endure great suffering, endure great pain. They don't fear that I can fast indefinitely, endure all sorts of torture and inflict it. People fear my open-heartedness and my kindness because they think they have to be like me. People fear that. They shake and tremble because they'll say, Z was so nice to me. I hope I don't have to be nice to him. I hope I don't have to pay it back. That's a debt I don't want to incur. Because he's strong and I'm weak. Someone even had the nerve and the intestinal fortitude tell me that one time. They says, "I, I couldn't be like you. You're too devoted, dedicated, and willing to sacrifice for others. I, I couldn't do that, and it makes me feel bad about myself, and I blame you for that. Someone actually told me that.
0: Hmm. I'm glad you cleared that up. I thought people were afraid of you because you're black. <laughs> that was well, just me, but yeah. it, it's good enough. Yeah, well that's
1: part of all that. <clears throat> they They fear the kindness more than they do the
0: blackness. How does one you said earlier Open-heartedness. How do you exercise
1: that? By being still and strong in yourself. Know yourself. Know your abilities, your potential. Master yourself. And you can walk freely on this earth. And you will fear nobody. Your greatest enemy is your own fear. Master yourself. Become an expert at yourself. Be a black belt at meism, and then you walk amongst people and you see very clearly. And then you see clearly. Your vision, your sensations, your senses are not uh, polluted with the fear of others. You'll see it all come from you. And once you get there, you can you can walk like a giant. You can embrace the people that like you. Navigate the people that don't. Mm. And take none of it personal. Just be you. Master you. That's it, man. And if you want to be open-hearted, you could be it. And to hell with everybody else. Mm. They can take it or leave it. And it doesn't make you adjust yourself one way or another. Strive to be the man of no rank, as I've said before. Not to be the the head of this, the head of that, the number one this. No. If you're the man of no rank, then there's no one who can judge you and assign to you status. And you're free. So you own the world that help, Carlos? That helps a lot.
0: If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. Every five-star review allows us to share more unique and insightful content. Learn more at thedispassionateobserver.com. Thanks for listening, and please tune in again next week. Peace.